And because of the length of the passage this morning, we will be reading in Isaiah 5. Please remain seated as we read from God's Word. Let me sing for my beloved my song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I look for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I want to do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. And briars and thorns shall grow up. And I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but beheld bloodshed for righteousness. But behold, an outcry. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands." Therefore, my people, go into exile for the lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exults in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the Lord, holy God, shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and the nomad shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work, that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. 
Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and the dry grass sinks down into the flame, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked and their corpses were as refuse in the middle of the streets. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is still stretched out. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Well, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, we uh, remember, uh, maybe even before anything else, uh, right now in your presence, that, that we stand in your grace, uh, that because of Christ Jesus, uh, we do not need to come to you afraid, but we can come, as you tell us, uh, boldly, confident, because you have promised that in Christ there is forgiveness and wholeness. And so, Lord, just remembering that reality that we are loved by you, we ask that you would show your love to us by enabling us to hear what you have for us this morning, that you would renew us and strengthen us and make us more like Christ Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. I was wrong, and you are right to be angry with me. Have you ever find yourself having to say those words? Uh, probably all of us know what it's like to feel like someone is upset with us. And if you're anything like me, when someone's upset with you, the first thing to do is just kind of you feel defensive, like the barriers go up. And I find, at least for myself, and I'm not proud of this, that this is especially true when I realize I've probably done something to deserve it. When I've said something really insensitive, where I have clearly been selfish, where I realize deep down I have hurt someone, that's especially when I try to kind of go on the defensive. Maybe you're the same way. I mean, probably many of us know the tactics we use. It's not even something that we think about, but, but we can use the tactic of blame shifting. You know, sure, I didn't clean the kitchen, but I wouldn't have had to if you hadn't made such a mess. Or, or we sometimes try to, to minimize it, right, where we say, yeah, I forgot to pick you up yesterday, but it's an easy thing to do, and that's no big deal. Or, or sometimes it's, it's justifying ourselves. Yes, I know you told me that in private, and I told someone else, but I had the right to do that. We, we, we go on defensive, right? And if you notice, each of those ways that we do it, it's actually a form of attack. This was your fault, or you're being unrational, or you shouldn't think of it this way. Now, that never really works for us. Because when we're feeling defensive, it's almost always when we feel like we've wronged someone we care about. And so us attacking the very person that we care about always goes poorly. And even more than that, the problem is that if we realize deep down that we've done something wrong but we won't admit it, we are keeping ourselves from recognizing the truth. We are choosing to keep ourselves deceived, and that is never a good thing. In, in the moment, the only really right thing to do is to say those words. I was wrong, and you're right to be angry with me. 
And I think actually both parts are important because oftentimes if we say I was wrong, we can kind of almost immediately negate it with a but. I was wrong, but you, or whatever. To actually mean I was wrong, that second part is, is key. I was wrong and you're right to be angry with me. I was wrong and I realized that my wrong actually affected you. It was really something. It was unjust and I realized you were hurt by it. You are right to be angry with me. The problem is, that is so hard to say in the moment, isn't it? I mean, I've tried to figure out why. Why is it so hard? And I think there is something where we're having to kind of let go of our final barrier of protection because we want to see ourselves as like the heroes of our own story who, who are the good guys. And to say I was wrong and you were right to be angry with me is saying, no, I wasn't the good guy here. And not only that, but I'm kind of relinquishing any rights. You are right to be angry with me. It, honestly, it almost feels like a kind of death to just kind of let go and say that in the moment. And yet it is the only way forward in terms of both our relationship with the other person and in terms of our own selves being made whole. So we are now in the final part of the introduction of Isaiah. I've talked about how we're in this Isaiah project, working through Isaiah for the whole year. And the first five chapters act as the orientation to the rest of the book. They are helping us to understand how this book is supposed to affect us. And if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that kind of God held out this vision for us of what we as God's people are meant to be and called by God to be. And at the same time, he also was very real about the mess of God's people. And what he said is the only way from here to there is through humility. The only way from here to there is through repentance. And here as the introduction comes to a conclusion, we see perhaps with, with stark clarity the only way for us to be whole, to be healed, to be the people of God we were created to be, we need to be able to say to God, I was wrong, we were wrong, and God, you are right to be angry with us. So we see that um, in our passage, um, and it begins with kind of a strange love song. You know, if you notice at the very beginning, it says, I will sing a song about my beloved, but we immediately find out that the song is about his beloved making a vineyard. Um, probably not the thing that would really resonate with us, but remember, this was an agrarian society where lots of people were farmers. And so here's the story. The story is of this person who had really kind of a beautiful vision. He owned a hill that was fertile. It had just the right amount of rain, just the right amount of sun. And so he decided that he was going to build a vineyard, a vineyard that would bring income, of course, but would also be delightful for him and also bring blessing to the whole community, that they could enjoy the fruits of his labor, the wine that he would create. And so, so he starts working, and it is a lot of work to do this. The whole first year, he is just taking all of the rocks out of the hill because the hill in Judea were filled with rocks, and so he'd be digging square foot by square foot, getting the rocks out of the soil, putting them in a pile, and then he'd be leveling out the soil, making terraces so that the rainfall could come rightly. And that was just year one. And then year two, he's taking the, the, those rocks that he's dug out and he builds a wall around the hill and then he finally finds the best of vines and he plants those vines. 
And with the rest of the rocks, he builds a tower so that at times if he needs to, he can go up and look to see if there's any threats in the distance, any thieves or whatever. And finally, in the final bit for year two, he makes a wine press so that when the grapes come and the juice is ready, he can make the wine. And then year three comes. And at this point, you have to imagine that he is looking at the work and feeling justifiably proud. He has spared no expense. He has worked hard, and he has created a beautiful vineyard. And you can just imagine the amount of excitement that he would be feeling as he starts seeing these small grapes along the vines. And they're getting bigger, and they're starting to look ripe. And finally, when it's clear that they are as ripe as they can be, he takes a grape, and he begins to try to enjoy the fruit of his labor. And here's where things change. It says, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And, and that word wild could just as easily be translated sour. Can you imagine in that moment just how devastating this would be? He has worked two years doing nothing but preparing for this moment, and he eats and it sets his teeth on edge, and he realizes the entire vineyard is worthless. And in that moment, the song kind of being over, the, the, this, this figure actually kind of breaks the fourth wall. That is, the, the vine planter suddenly speaks to the audience. And now, O oh, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. Whose fault is this? He is saying, what more was there for me to do for my vineyard? And the answer is obviously nothing. You have done absolutely everything you could have done. When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield sour grapes? And the only answer is, for some reason, the vines didn't do what they were supposed to. The vines have a problem with them. And so, at this point, you need to understand that that again, if this illustration doesn't kind of resonate with us, it would have resonated with those people. They would have been grimacing when they heard the story. And so, as he is saying what happens next, they are going to be nodding. They're going to be agreeing. When he says, now let me tell you what I'm going to do. I am angry. I am angry angry about this. I am going to just tear down that wall and animals can come and trample the vines. I am going to stop weeding. I'm going to stop hoeing and there's going to be briars and thorns. I am going to let this vineyard get destroyed. And everyone would be nodding and saying, and that is fair enough. You have invested in everything and it gave you nothing. Of course you're going to be angry. And so then in the moment, that's where people are hooked. Because in verse 7, we see the punchline, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. God is saying, here's the story. The story I'm actually telling is your story. I brought you out of Egypt, and I planted you in this beautiful land of Canaan, and I gave you everything. 
I, I, I protected you from your enemies. I gave you all sorts of abundance of food. I gave you my law so that you can know what is good and what is wrong. I gave you everything, and my desire was that you would be beautiful, that you would fill the world with your beauty by showing what it looks like to relate to a true God, that others would be able to taste and see and know that I am good. But what happened? He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. You should know that there's a play in words here. The word justice and bloodshed, or the word righteousness and outcry sound almost exactly the same. As I think one commentator said, he looked for right, and he only found riots. He looked for decency, and he only found despair. He was looking for beautiful fruit because that is what he made it for, and instead, all he got were sour grapes. And in this moment, he is posing the question, judge between me and you. Whose fault is this? Could I have done anything different? Don't I have the right to be angry? He, he continues to explain kind of what what this sour fruit is. Perhaps you noticed in the following verses, he keeps on repeating this word, woe, woe. And that's almost exactly how it sounds in Hebrew. It's oh, oh. And I think in some ways, every time we see that word, which is a word of kind of moaning, of, of sorrow, we can only almost imagine each time it's like he's biting a fruit. And it's like, oh. I, I, I made this beautiful land for you. This land God gave to his people was enough for everyone so that there would be no poverty, that everyone would have enough, and that there would be complete you know, harmony for everyone living. And, and, and what happens instead? Woe to those who joined house to house, who had field to field. The rich just hoard and accumulated, and the poor are cast out. Woe. God gave this abundance. He, he says, I'm giving you the fruit of the land so that you might enjoy it, and as you enjoy it, be filled with gratitude and allow it to draw you nearer to me because I'm the one who gave you these things. But, but what happens instead? Whoa, it says he, people are, are partying from morning to night, and it's not the kind of joy that allows them to draw nearer to God. It's the way that they're doing it so that they can be removed from God, so they can just ignore him and pretend he doesn't exist. It's sour. God gave his people this law. That's the thing that more than anything else distinguishes them from anyone else. Other nations enjoy wealth, but only God's people get his law, his instruction of this is the beautiful way of living. This is how to walk rightly with me and to be just with each other. And yet, what do they do with that? Rather than being good, whoa, verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Instead of hearing God's word and listening and learning, they choose to say, I know better. And things that are good, like humility and self-restraint and generosity are just looked down upon. And things that are bad, such as the accumulation of wealth for its own sake, such as hedonism is seen as the good life. They've turned everything upside down, and it's not just that they're wrong, it's that it actually has effects. It hurts people. It says they do this, they acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. 
The, the rich are able to get off scot-free. doesn't matter what they've done. They have all the power. And the poor who are innocent just get wronged. That's the way his people are. It is sour. God is saying, I gave everything. I gave you everything that you might be a beautiful vineyard filled with beautiful fruit and you are sour. And so what will I do? What do you think I should do? Well, we know already where it's going to go. God is going to be angry. In fact, God says he is angry. Verse 24 says, they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and they have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. And for all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Now, these are gruesome words for us, but you need to remember that the people who are hearing this have seen this. God's people, in this moment, as they're reading this, the very first readers, they are surrounded by death and destruction. They have seen their country be overtaken by other armies, and now God is saying, you need to realize, I chose that this would happen. Because you are wrong. And I am right to be angry. And if these people are truly hearing, you know what their initial response is likely to be. Because we have the same one. There's, there's the temptation probably to blame and say, we wouldn't be this way if it weren't for you. Or, or to maybe trivialize, this is not that big of a deal. Or, or to at least justify and say, we had every right to do this. But in each case, it would be a lie. And it wouldn't move them any closer to where they needed to go. The only way for God's people in this moment to move towards life, to move towards God, to move towards healing is to own something that would have felt like death to be able to say and say, we are wrong. We were wrong. We are wrong, God. And God, you have every right to be angry with us. Now, the reason we are spending time with this, the reason that we need to hear this is because what is true here is not just true for God's people in that time. What is true here is true for every person at all times who is sinful, which is all of us. The reality is you will never experience a close relationship with God you will never truly be made whole until you, like people then, are able to say, Lord, I am wrong and you are right to be angry with me. Now, I wonder how, how that strikes you. I'll, I'll tell you, I think that it's probably one of the aspects of the Christian teaching that is hardest for people to accept because well, it's often a natural thing, I think, for us to say, but, but, but we're not really that bad. 
But I would suggest that when we have that reaction, and it's a common reaction, we should wonder, could this be the very same reaction we have whenever we know we're in the wrong and we're being put on the defensive? Could it be that deep down you know that this already is true? Consider something that we've already been mentioning in this service. Everything that you and I have, everything is a gift. I mean, you did not have to exist. I did not have to exist. This world did not have to exist. Everything that is, is simply because God said, I am going to make this happen. And he did this because he is good, because he wanted to fill this reality with greater joy. He wanted us to be able to enjoy his goodness so that we could know him and delight in him. And he he gave these things to us so that we could also have the joy of serving others so that there could be harmony and delight. And of course, when we look at the world, we realize that's clearly not how this world is. But the thing that we also need to realize is that if we look inside of ourselves, if we are really honest with ourselves... We have to say that's not who I am either. That I have failed to be what God has created me to be. Each of us in our own ways have faced times where rather than giving ourselves in generosity when we should, we've instead held back in self-protection. Or instead of being genuinely loving and caring about the other, we've only been concerned about our own needs. Instead of humbly listening and learning and depending on God's wisdom, we've decided that whatever makes sense to us is what's right. Again and again, in different ways, we have shown ourselves to be sour. And the only path to honesty is to say to God, I am wrong. But when we're saying that, we should realize that when we're saying I am wrong, we are also saying to God, and you are right to be angry with me. And that's the hard part. To say God has every right to judge us. That when he says the wages of sin are death, he's saying that about us, and it is right. It is right for us to die. It is right for God to be angry with us. To say that, it rubs us deeply the wrong way. There's a kind of a relinquishing of our own sense of of rights. We're we're saying to God, "I, I give up on any pretense of saying that I have a right to be angry with you, God. God, whatever you are choosing to do, that is right. I deserve it. Honestly, it does. It feels like a kind of death to a way of being. And yet, it is the only way to life. This passage is calling each of us to consider Have have you come to that point of honesty where you have recognized before God that you have wronged him and that he has right to be angry with you? Now, before we really kind of land on our own personal answer to that question, I do want to say I think there's one more part of this story that we need to hear for us truly to be able to say that. And it's a part of the story that actually isn't in our passage. It's, it's later on in Isaiah. If, if we were to just further on to Isaiah 27, which I have right here, um, we find there's actually a second verse to this love song. 
I'll just read it to you. Where, where God speaks of a future day, and it says, In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no anger. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Yes, let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Do you hear that? God is saying very clearly that his anger is not the final word in this. That, that the sour grapes are not the final word in this. He's saying that there is a day coming where this vineyard that now is so battered will be beautiful. And he will have no more anger, only forgiveness. He will delight in protecting and watering and making sure nothing bad happens to his vineyard. And his people, who right now are so sour, will fill the world with beautiful fruit. And the question that we are meant to be asking, I think, at that point is how? Because if you know the story of Israel, you know that for centuries upon centuries upon centuries, there's a very clear pattern of behavior. And if you know yourself, you know year after year, on our own, there is a very clear pattern of behavior. And we ask, how in the world can this beautiful picture of a vineyard that God delights in, that is filled with beautiful fruit, how can that be true of us? And the answer, I don't think, is really clear until the night before Jesus goes to the cross. When he is sitting with his disciples, he explains something that my guess is they did not understand when he says, I am the true vine, and you are the branches. If you are apart from me, you can do nothing. But if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. See, it's actually true that there is there's a real way that you and I do need to die. The self that we are apart from Christ has no future. When we are acknowledging things, there is a kind of way where we're saying that self is over. We are owning the fact that that person needs to die. And Jesus is saying, yet if you die, if you die to yourself in me, there will be resurrection life. This, he is saying, is why I'm about to go to the cross. I'm about to go to the cross to deal with the anger, to deal with your sin, to deal with your guilt. And if you abide in me, you will experience the life that I am filled with that will overflow in resurrection. He's saying if we trust in him, not ourselves, if we identify with him, not ourselves, if we allow him to be our wisdom, not our own, if in every way he abides in us and we abide in him, then what was not true before is now true, and we will be changed, and we will bear the beautiful fruit that we were created to make. Some of you um, perhaps are familiar with the book Unbroken. Uh, it's an amazing tale of this one person, Ernie Zamperini, uh, who ended up being a prisoner of war during World War II. 
um, experienced all sorts of crazy things, and you can just imagine, if you know what happened to him, how when he was done with it, as he came home, he came home battered. He, he, was, he had PTSD, he was bitter at what took place to him, he had nightmares, and these meant that he would kind of self-medicate through alcohol. His marriage was falling apart, and one day, his wife says, we should go hear this young preacher that I've heard about, a guy by the name of Billy Graham. So he goes with his wife and he sits down and what he hears from Billy Graham is that he is sinful. And it bugs him. Uh, as, as Hillenbrand in the book tells us, Louis felt indignant rage flaring in him, a struck match. I am a good man, he thought. I am a good man. And yet, even as he had this thought, he felt the lie in it. He knew what he had become. So almost in spite of himself, a couple days later, he goes back, and this time as he's hearing the same person preach, he's recognizing there's more to the story than that, where this person is saying, yes, you are sinful, but if you abide in Jesus... If you place your trust in him, there is forgiveness and there is life beyond this death. And we are told in the story that in that moment, in a way that he didn't fully understand, he came forward and believed. And what's remarkable, and this is oftentimes not the way it looks, but what's remarkable is just how quickly his life changed. He stopped drinking. His marriage came back together. And, and even more remarkably, the bitterness he had towards those who had treated him subsided and he was able to forgive them. And what we see in his story is that as he came to abide in Jesus, he bore much fruit. Now, I don't want to say that, I mean, probably none of us are going to have a story as exciting as, as Zamperini. And, and few of us will ever have a story where the change is as remarkable. But let me tell you that what Jesus promises and what I have seen to be true is that as we abide in Jesus, we do have a story of change. We do have a story of moving from selfishness to love. We do have a story of moving from despair and anxiety to faith and to joy. We do have a story of moving from sour fruit that is our own to the beautiful fruit that can bless the world through Jesus. But what our passage this morning tells us that what we need to understand is that the first step towards this is a step of terrifying honesty and saying before God the truth that we are wrong and that he is right to be angry with us. And so I invite us even now, whether you are someone who is just maybe thinking about faith for the first time or whether you're someone who has been one who has trusted in Christ for many years, to spend time acknowledging your sin before God, knowing that he is one who also delights to forgive. And I'll lead us in prayer in a couple minutes' time. Would you please pray silently with me?
Father, you know uh, the way that, that sin masks itself, how it is a consistent temptation on our part to trivialize our wrongdoing or to place blame elsewhere. Father, forgive us for how we deceive ourselves and pretend that we can deceive you. Lord, you know our sin. You know our selfishness. You know our lack of trust in you and lack of gratitude. You know our lack of concern at times for the poor and for injustice in this world. Lord, we own these truths. They do not make us proud. We, we at least to some degree, realize the sourness of this and we grieve. And we ask for your forgiveness. Lord, you are a just God and it is right for you to be angry at our sin. And yet, Lord, we also trust in your promises that you tell us that in Christ your anger has been dealt with and that there is now no more condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we ask that as clearly as we might see our sin, that you would help us to see your forgiveness in Christ Jesus even more clearly that as we are freed by the knowledge of this love, we would be a beautiful people who bear much fruit for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here, the good news of the gospel from that first chapter in Isaiah that we've been reflecting on the last few weeks. Come now, let us argue it out, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be like snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. In Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God.